and welcome back to Carl's Internal Monologue. In this episode, we're going to be discussing the Babel 5 Season 5 episode, The Ragged Edge. So this is like a night and day. Uh, the last episode had a lot of issues, uh, both story-wise, budget-wise, presentation-wise, uh, and it kind of ended on a whimper. Uh, and the Ragged Edge is back to Babylon 5 as usual. It's good quality. Uh, sure, it's low-budget shows occasionally, like when Garibaldi gets thrown against the uh, balcony ledge and it lurches because it's just an itty-bitty prop. Um, you know, uh, but beyond that, like, this is a very, very good episode. And it's just so night and day. <laughs> like, like I said, I think... There's a handful of episodes in season five that give season five its reputation, because overall it's quite, it has quite an interesting through line, and I like the use of making a denouement an entire season. I think that is a fantastic choice, and uh, a very risky storytelling choice, but one I think that pays off in the end. Uh, and I think there's a handful of episodes in season five that give it its reputation as being lackluster or not good, and. Uh, the Phoenix Rising, the last episode, was definitely one of those. Uh, so this episode really focuses on Garibaldi and Jakar, as well as a minor deal with Franklin, and it's um, quite interesting that th I consider this episode the beginning of the end. What I mean by that is that there were there's really two threads, major plot threads, running through season five that uh, interweave with each other, obviously, but then you have each individual character arc going, uh, concluding and, or in some cases, uh, furthering or beginning anew. Um, but these two major plot threads, one of them was finished last episode. That was the telepath situation. Now we have the situation with the ISA and the supply lines being attacked by the Centauri. Uh, so we really only have one major plot thread, and then everything else is focused on character arcs, concluding them, getting them to a place where something and something begins. And I've actually seen this complained about, and I'm so confused why it's being complained about, um, that Babylon 5 ends things while also beginning new things, and people see this as counterintuitive. I don't. Uh... In my opinion, more stories should be like this. I, The Witcher, which is what I'm covering next, also does this. Something ends, something begins. Life is not a fairy tale. Life does not end with a nice bow and they lived happily ever after. That's not the way life is. And if we want to treat fiction as a, another universe, a lens into another world, which is what B5 is meant to be, a five-year slice of this universe, then things have to end and also begin at the same time. So we have Franklin accepting his new job, which, by the way, a nice Benjamin Kyle reference, which actually feeds into the point, is that things can end and go. Like, Benjamin Kyle hasn't been around since The Gathering, but he's been mentioned a couple of times, uh, and uh, he's still having impact on the universe. Uh, things can end and things begin at the same time. I think Sir, Sir Terry Pratchett uh, said it best with a, he, he, in his books he had a uh, quite literal substance called an iridium, uh, which was the driving force of all stories. He literally made it a device, an actual mineral within his stories. It was actually quite clever. Um, that the way people want stories to be 
is uh, once upon a time kind of thing. Uh, and that's how they want it to begin. And then they want it to end with, they lived happily ever after. It's not the way stories should work. Certain stories can work with that, and it suits that genre or that style of writing. But something like this that is very much a slice of life of this universe, no. Something and something begins. That's the way life works. Think about it. There is a nothing in your life that concluded without something else happening in the foreground that became just as important, if not more important. Uh, life does not follow traditional narrative through lines. That's just the way life is. It's confusing and it's annoying, but it's our life. And life is a story in the, at the end of the day. So I really don't understand the complaints about B5 opening up the possibility of characters having a life beyond this show. You know, we know Franklin's going to become the head of xenobiology at Earthdome. That's cool. Knowing that that's where his trajectory is makes perfect sense from, you know, his character. Him growing out of his arrogance, growing out of his adventure lifestyle where he was hitchhiking across starships to learn more uh, learn more about aliens. Uh, conquering his uh, issues with, uh, you know, not understanding himself. Uh, that this is a natural conclusion to his arc, but also a continuation of he will have a life beyond this show. When the when the credits roll, these characters' lives do not end. They are not the the intention of a something and something begins ending to a fictional piece is to say these aren't fictional people; these are real people with real lives and real impl implications. Uh, at least in their universe. Yes, in the real world, we understand this is just a book we're reading or this is just a TV show, but for them, it's very much real life. And that's the way I think a lot of fiction should be treated. Um, it's where we get the ideas of groundedness and uh, empathy uh, with various characters. Uh, and I think that is the strength of the series is that it, it's willing to spend an entire season on a denouement and have things end while also other things begin. Um, the Jakar bit is just an excellent, excellent bit. Uh, you know, him and Londo return, and he's now being uh, worshipped as some sort of religious icon, which is confusing to him, and it turns out that they had published the book of Jakar, which is the book he's been writing since season three, uh, you know, and uh, it because he, 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 they, they did it out of fear, expecting him never to return, because he went to Centauri Prime, and very few Narns ever, if any Narn ever goes there and survives. Uh, and so it was built on their own racial prejudice and their own sort of uh, fear-mongering. Uh, and with that, his book released. And his book teaches against all that fear and all that racial prejudice, ironically. Uh, but he is afraid of becoming a cult of personality, becoming what Byron did, basically, where they don't pay attention to the message he's preaching, they just pay attention to him. Uh, which is demonstrated so perfectly in that scene where uh, he tells Lauren to put his face in the book, and the book is holy. Uh, that basically he is trying to combat zealotry within the Narn. The Narn are a deeply spiritual people, and they are people that have been abused and beaten and broken so many times throughout history. For the past hundred years, they have been full of hate and anger, and they have used that to free themselves. Now, they must become something new, something different. 
as Talon says, it's not about teaching them something new. It's about unlearning what they have learned, unlearning the hate, unlearning the anger, and becoming something more, something more enlightened, just like Jakar has. That has been the character arc of Jakar since season one, is to move from a warrior to a priest. Uh, and now he is a, effectively a religious leader, and he can preach that, and all he's trying to do is get them to understand. And of course, there's not going to be people who latch on to that and fully grasp it. As we saw with the guy that, that he snaps the book on, he... Only un he, he only understood the book on a surface level. He didn't understand that it was a chronicling of Jakar's life as he evolved and changed and went across his arc that we got to see through these five seasons. And so he believes everything at face value. Religious texts are supposed to be interpretive. You're supposed to be able to look at them and gain messages and read things into them. Hell, all art is like that. Um, you know, that this entire podcast is literally me reading into Babylon 5 what I believe it's trying to say. Whether that's exactly what JMS was trying to say is another question, but it's what I found within Babylon 5 and what it means to me. Uh, and religious texts are... Uh, are all about that. Uh, they teach moral lessons, philosophical lessons, uh, in interpretive ways. You're not supposed to take them at complete face value. It's understanding that some of this is wrapped up in mythology and bias and personal opinion, and so it, everything must be taken and examined. And, uh, you know, the the entire ordeal of them basically go oh most holy and he goes no there is no most holy here there's only me uh he is fearful as that scene with talon shows that because of the way the narnar and because of the way he is seen he is seen as a martyr he's seen as a symbol he's uh seen as this great leader and now he's this great religious icon and that can hold some severe ramifications and he doesn't feel comfortable in a leadership position we have known this he turned it down uh, you know last season he has no interest in that he simply wants a better life for his people and if teaching his lessons that he learned can do that, making them unlearn their hate, their, their, their prejudice, the cycles of violence that they are stuck in, he can break that cycle. And he sees it as a worthy thing, but he also understands that some people may not understand it. Hell, uh, you know, people watch Star Trek or watch Babylon 5 and say, they're not political. You, you, you can hear that all the time on the internet. I'm like, what show have you been watching? Because Star Trek was political from the very first episode that aired. Hell, Babylon 5 is incredibly political. Uh, all art is political in one way or another. Uh, it may not be obvious to you, but it is uh, explicitly political. Art is just that way. And uh, so it's clear to me that people can be big idiots. And it's clear to Chakar that people can be big idiots. And so he's going to try and fix that the best he can by humbling them, by fighting early zealotry, by not preaching religious dogma, but preaching the moral lessons that are within the book. And I love that. Just absolutely adore that. I love this Chakar. Chakar has officially become... Like, that character that I adore, like, 
Londo has always been my favorite character, and I love his arc, and I love the trajectory it goes, and how tragic it is. But Jacolor gets a far more hopeful arc, and it's an arc I love. Just seeing him evolve from this angry, bitter politician that uh, is full of so ha- is so much hatred and bile to become this priest who believes in empathy and compassion and understanding. That's quite a ways the journey, may I say. Now, uh, the Garibaldi stuff. We uh, He's back on the... Uh, uh, the wagon of alcoholics. He is drinking again, as we saw last episode. What, what's so sad about it is it's a vicious cycle. That, uh, as I mentioned last time, that uh, he had no control over what happened to him. Thinks the bester, and so he drinks to have control because it makes him feel better, and he believes he can control it, but he can't because you know his psychology is warped in the way, and you know uh, because he has an addictive personality, and therefore he can't control it because there's no such thing as controlling an alcoholic. Uh, and well, boom, you know he's back back on his bullshit again, basically. And I feel very sorry for him. Uh, and notice when he takes the mission to go to the the uh, Drazi homeworld, which, by the way, I love seeing the Drazi homeworld, and I love like the cultural world building that JMS does so quickly and effortlessly. We already knew that they had a very a certain way of living that they uh, that they're very bureaucratic, uh, that they're they're. They they seem to take things to logical extremes, the green-purple thing. Uh, and they're probably one of the major faces of the League of Dawn Alliance worlds. And so getting to see their home world and see that they are very... Because of, uh, of the way they live, they live in very open areas. They're a communal race. So their interiors of their buildings are quite small and cramped. But going outside, all their buildings have large balconies. Uh, and I like how uh, the war was so common, obviously, because uh, their green versus purple ideology, you know, the, the, the you know, once every cycle, you know, uh, they, they arbitrarily take a color out of a barrel and they kill each other off. You know, uh, that war was so common that they built their buildings to be so narrow so that the roads are just everything's so clumped together that the roads are so narrow that everything feels cramped and so it's hard to bring an army through bring engines of war through brilliant stuff and i like how garibaldi and his friend have a discussion about tradition as culture um i ragged on and on about tradition when it came to the mimbari that was what was causing the mimbari to stagnate Culture is vitally important to us as people, uh, and tradition can be a part of that culture. Uh, but it depends on how it's used. If a tradition is used to blackwall someone, to uh, stop progression, then that's a bad thing. If if tradition is used uh, as mere aesthetic choice, as mere um, showing your... Uh, philosophy or your value of things then that's fine and so it's a nice contrast where the Mimbari use the tradition to regiment their society and stagnate their society uh the drazi have used tradition to um sort of communicate things about themselves to 
develop their culture in a way that is understandable. Uh, it's quite cool to see that that inverse of the way the Membari treated tradition. Uh, but notice, uh, back to my original point before I mentioned the Drazi homeworld, notice when Garibaldi takes the mission, uh, Franklin wants to go along, and he immediately shoots him down. It's like, no, I want to go alone. That is very, very important. Uh, because it's Franklin. Franklin was a drug addict. You know, he, he was addicted to stems. And who was the person that forced him to admit his addiction? Oh yeah, that's right, that's Garibaldi. The alcoholic, the person with an addictive personality who can see someone with an addictive personality just like he can. So it makes sense that Franklin, having that addictive personality, having overcome that, just like Garibaldi has done, can see the downward spiral Garibaldi's on. And he wants to help him, and he can sense that something's off. And it, it it's the kind of thing that you see with two people who have addictions, how they can see each other go, you know, spiraling off and falling off the wagon, and how they can spot it more easily than others. Uh, and this will come back again um, uh, in the, the later bit of this season, uh, where, uh, when Garibaldi's obviously called out on his alcoholism, uh, because he's becoming, as the, indicated by the end of this episode, uh, and his big fuck-up on the, the Drazi homeworld, is that his alcoholism is getting in the way of his intelligence duties as the ISA intelligence officer. Uh, so, this all has to come to a head at some point. Uh, that his, his own personal issue is now affecting things on a interstellar scale. Um, I mentioned last time that, uh, you know, I don't think he would have killed Bester, but he would have hurt him because he understood that his, um, uh, his actions have political weight now. Uh, and I think that is still in there, but the, the, the addictive personality is taking over and he's pushing people away, especially people like Franklin who can understand his position and try and help him push away, push away. Uh, and it's he's becoming uh, a bit more erratic, less thoughtful. Um, he's still smart. He's you know he's still the classic detective, and he's still really good at his job. He's just different because the alcoholism, the alcohol itself, takes priority over doing a good job. And I don't have an addiction, but I have known people who have had addictions. Alcoholism runs in my family, which is why I've never drank alcohol and will, and never will. Uh, and, but I have depression, uh, as I've mentioned before on this show, and uh, I can recognize Garibaldi's downward spiral. Like, no, like I, it's not a hundred percent because I'm not, I don't have an addiction, but that pushing of the uh, uh, p- pushing people the way that you know could actively help you because you're afraid. That's a that's a classic symptom right there of mental illness, uh, and it's truly sad, because Garibaldi had gotten to, gotten himself in a place last season, the end of last season, where he was happy, that he was content, that, uh, that everything Bester had done to him, he could fix, he got lease, you know, he got his friends back, everything is back to normal, and now it's all blowing up in his face again, all because Bester was a sadistic motherfucker and caused him to relapse. And that is truly, truly sad. Um, and I, I, the, 
the decision at the end to keep Londo out of the loop after they find out that the Centauri are connected to the supply line hits um, is understandable because, uh, as Shakar puts it, you know, Londo uh, would be furious because they think it's pretty obvious that he's not involved, but he's the accidental leak that he's leaking um, without knowing. And if if Londo found out, he'd be furious, and he would go and try and solve the issue, and he'd most likely get killed or make the situation worse. But it's also going to hurt the trust in the long run uh, with keeping Londo out of the loop, um, which is, uh, it, it's a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation right there. Uh, it, as it is, the entire situation with the ISA is damned if you do, damned if you don't. Like, the the members are basically boycotting uh, meetings at this point uh, because of the supply line thing. Everybody's scared of each other. Everybody's blaming each other. And the ISA is brand new. It's only a couple months old. It's fracturing. And uh, basically, Sheridan and co are at a point where if they don't make the exact right decisions, it's going to all blow up in their face. So they have to play this very, very closely. Um, but overall, very, very good episode. Um, you know, it, it, this is back, this is B, B5 back on form. Our uh, last episode had a lot of issues, uh, and I talked about them, but it also had some good bits in it. Uh, but this episode is real classic, just traditional B5 back on its jazz. Uh, next episode is going to be something a bit different, which is going to be fun. Because uh, it's a Psychor episode. Uh, and it's all from Bestia's perspective, as I mentioned last time. So it's a break from the norm. So we, we, you know, we resolved one major plot thread. We have returned back to normality. Uh, we only have one more major plot thread we're going. We're concluding some character arcs, furthering others, putting them on a new trajectory after the show ends. And uh, we're going to take a brief break to return to Bester and say goodbye to one of the most lovable but hateable villains in this show. Uh, so I shall see you then. Bye. <laughs>